Well, we're finishing our series on John 14 to 17 today, and it's been a great series. Like Charlie, I've really enjoyed it and gotten so much out of it. It's been encouraging to see the way that Jesus cares for his disciples and he teaches them just before he goes to the cross. We've been reminded of our union with Christ and the gift of the Spirit for believers. And we've been challenged to think about the implications of Jesus being the vine and us being the branches. We've been sobered by the warnings of persecution, but the challenge to remain faithful and to have joy. And today we read Jesus' prayer. And it might be helpful to have a Bible open to chapter 17 if you've got one handy as we go along. Jesus prays a lot. If you read through the Gospel accounts, you'll notice that Jesus is often somewhere in his own praying or praying with the disciples. And you might wonder, why does Jesus pray? Is he just talking to himself since he's God? Why does he need to? Well, because Jesus takes on our humanity, he models for us what a righteous human being is like. And that is someone who is dependent on God who talks to God, who prays. Therefore, if Jesus prays a lot, then we should pray a lot too. So if you're not in the habit of talking to God regularly, I'd encourage you to get into it. Praying is one of God's means of grace to us. It's a way of developing our relationship with him, reordering our thoughts, our feelings, priorities and our lives, according to his priorities. And God listens and answers us, so prayer has impact. Jesus not only teaches the disciples in chapters 14 to 16, he then prays for the disciples. So let's not neglect prayer. We can also learn a lot about what Jesus prays. Not just that he prays, but what he prays. By listening into Jesus' prayer, we get a better sense of what matters to him and what we should be praying for too. People don't waste words at the end. Final words are important. They get to the core of who people are and what they value. So Cicero said to the assassins that Mark Antony sent to capture him, there is nothing proper about what you are doing, soldier, but try to kill me properly. And I'm sure that you've heard Ned Kelly's famous saying when he was hanged, such is life. And true to form, George Harrison from the Beatles apparently said, love one another before he died. People say things that reveal their character and what's important to them. So so we can learn about Jesus' identity and his mission from his final words. And this prayer is jam-packed with so much but I think that we can summarise the chapter according to what do we learn about Jesus' identity and his mission? And then from that, what do we learn about Jesus' disciples' identity and their mission as he prays for them? Jesus prays first for himself, then he prays for the disciples, and then lastly he prays for all those who will become believers through their message. So firstly, let's look at what Jesus prays for himself. John 17, 1 to 5. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all, all those you have given him. 
Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus prays for glory. As the Son of God the Father, he has always had glory. But in verse 4, Jesus says that he has manifested God's glory here on earth through his incarnation. As John chapter 1 verse 14 says, We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus didn't just point to God like a prophet or a teacher does. He made God known. He revealed God to us as the only Son of God. Jesus showed us his glory. But now Jesus says the hour has come. This pinnacle event that the gospel has been leading up to that will glorify Jesus has arrived. His death on the cross. When Jesus is debased on the cross is paradoxically when he will be exalted. From John chapter 12, Jesus says this, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The cross is the moment when Jesus is most fully glorified. When we can see the fullness of God, God's love and his justice. So who is Jesus? He is the Son of God who is glorified. And as well as that, Jesus is the sent one. We said that all the way through this passage, In verse 3, verse 8, verse 18, verse 21, verse 23, verse 25. And this is the primary way that the Apostle John speaks about Jesus in his Gospel, the sent one. In Jewish life, when a father wanted to send an important message to someone, they would not send a hired servant, but a son, and preferably the firstborn son. God sent Jesus with a mission to make God known so that God may be glorified. As is spelled out in the prologue, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Jesus knows the Father. He loves him. He shares his will He speaks the Father's words and exercises his authority. Jesus is both the messenger and the message. Jesus is the sent one. Jesus is sent to do the work that God gave him to do. That is, to reveal God and his glory through his life and teaching and primarily through his death on the cross. And the hour has arrived for Jesus' mission to come to its climax. And it's because Jesus is faithful to the work that the Father has given him to do, to dying on the cross, 
that his disciples firstly, and later all believers, partake in the task of declaring this to the world and making it known. So let's now turn our attention to those whom Jesus prays for next, to the disciples. What can we learn of their identity? Verses 6 to 12. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours and all you have is mine and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name that you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. So Jesus says in verse 6 that his disciples are those that the Father has, that gave him and who have obeyed his word. Jesus came to make God known and these disciples have accepted this word. And if we read on to what Jesus says about future believers, we see that the grounds for discipleship are the same. In verse 20, Jesus says, I will pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So it's by receiving and believing the word about Jesus as God's son who came to reveal God to us and die in our place so that we can be reconciled to God. That is how we're stamped as belonging to God. I wonder, do you notice the intimacy of the language for those that Jesus prays for? It's the language of belonging. Verse 6, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. Verse 9, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. And speaking of believers to come, that is us, verse 23, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. This is our identity. God has given us to Jesus. We belong to him. God loves us even as he loves the Son. Just let that sink in for a moment. We need to know who we are and whose we are. Who are we? We are God's beloved. Whom do we belong to? We belong to God. That is our identity. And it's out of this identity that we find our mission. We've seen this all the way through these chapters. As Jesus obeyed the Father, 
So we are to obey him. As the Father loved Jesus and Jesus loved us, so we are to love others. As Jesus and the Father are one, so we are to be one. We find our identity and our mission in Jesus. And as the Father sent Jesus into the world, so Jesus sends his disciples. Jesus prays to God in verses 13 to 19. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world... I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they true too may be truly satis- sorry, sanctified. John's very wordy. <laughs> Verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. What does it mean to be sent? It means that we don't speak our words, but we represent the one who sends us. The apostles are the primary witnesses to Jesus and it is from their declaration that we are incorporated into the people of God. That's what verse 20 says. And we are a secondary witness to this, to theirs, but are nonetheless sent, just like the first disciples. And we see that in verses 21 to 23 as Jesus prays that all believers would have an image on the world. The Father sending the Son is both the model and the grounds for the Son sending the disciples. They are to continue the Son's mission. Jesus' identity as the sent one is the foundation for his followers to be sent by him. The Father sends the Son. The Son sends the Spirit and his disciples into the world. This is the mission of God. And later in John chapter 20, after Jesus' death and resurrection, he appears to his disciples and we read these words. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Jesus' prayer in chapter 17 becomes his commission in chapter 20. This language of sending is used around 60 times in John's Gospel. Craig Keener says this, Whereas the sending of the Son is the heart of the fourth Gospel's plot, its conclusion is open-ended, spilling into the story of the disciples. Thus the church's mission is, for John's theology, to carry on Jesus' mission. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Like what John Forsyth said last week about joy not being optional, the identity and the mission of Jesus' disciples are not optional either. 
It is the will of God that he redeems the people for himself and sends them into the world. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, Every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. A missionary or an imposter. What God has done to us, he now wants to do through us. And we remember that he doesn't leave us alone in this. That God gives us his spirit to confirm our identity and to equip us for this mission. So the identity of Christians is that we belong to God through the receiving and obeying of his message about Jesus and that we are missionaries sent by God so that as Jesus prays in verse 21, so that the world may believe that God has sent him. If we see ourselves first and foremost as a worker or a spouse or a student, then we will build our life around this with mission as a fringe or as an addition to our life. But if you see yourself first and foremost as a member of God's missional people, then you'll build your life around this identity. All the talents, all the skills, the things that you have are seen around your core identity. Your job, your home, your income, your family are things that you are stewards of and belong to God for his glory. Knowing this changes and it rearranges our priorities and the way that we use what we have. It's out of our core identity as disciples and sent ones that we live that out. It's not additional or optional. It's who we are. Who we are changes what we do with our everyday lives. It's not that our Monday to Saturday lives are an inducement to invite friends to an event where they can hear the gospel. No, it's our everyday lives that declare and display the gospel. That's what Jesus is saying here. All of our life is to be all about Jesus. That means that our identity as God's sent ones must affect our everyday lives. And this is not just for Mike and I. This is every single one of us. I'm sure you've heard, we don't go to church. We are the church. And God has sent us to declare and display his good news to the world. And I think this is good news for us because it takes the pressure of us to get it right. God doesn't use experts. He uses ordinary Christians. It's not something that we do so much as who we are. That means that God has ordained the interactions that you have. He's ordained the people in your life. And he's at work through you to make himself known to the world. So expect God to use you. Be mindful of the opportunities that he gives you to be his witness to his truth and beauty. You are God's missionary in your everyday encounters. Joy and Tom were an elderly couple that I used to live next door to. And one day they asked if, they, if we could bring in their bins because they were going away for a trip. This ended up becoming a bit of a regular thing. 
We'd share our green bin if they had some extra garden waste. We'd collect their mail if they were going away. And their grandkids would come over and play with my kids when, when they were over. And in talking to Joy, she mentioned that she used to go to church. She was even a Sunday school teacher long ago. But since Tom wasn't interested in things like that, she stopped going when she got married. And well, the years went by, and one day Joy came to tell me that the doctors had found some cancer, but that she was going to fight it. That was the way she was. She handled her fear by throwing herself into fixing things. She was a fighter. And fight it she did, but it kept coming back. And I would tell her that I was praying for her. Sometimes she'd pop around when we were having dinner and she'd sit and listen when we were having our family devotional time. And they visited our church at Christmas and then she started going to a prayer and healing service at a church nearby. The cancer had been a wake-up call for her to discover, rediscover her faith. Now, living next door, they'd seen and heard it all. They could hear the times when I was yelling at the kids. They could see when they, hear when the kids were being rude or they were having a meltdown. But Joy said that she could also see the love and the reality of our faith, and it stirred something in her. She came back to Christ. And just before she died, I visited her in the hospital, and she smiled at me, and said that she wasn't afraid because she knew where she was going. Simple, everyday encounters that God uses. It's not so much about adding extra things to your life, but simply seeing all of your life as expressing your identity as God's disciples and being a little more intentional when those opportunities arise. So who are the people that your life intersects with naturally? Could you start stopping by more regularly for a chat or learn ways that you could be a blessing? Could you begin praying for a work colleague or for a neighbour? The opportunities are as endless and varied as the people that God sends as his missionaries. We are set apart for the world Jesus does not pray that the disciples are taken out of the world. Jesus prays that they are sanctified. Verse 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus' disciples are set apart for a special purpose, that they would remain in the world. But Jesus prays for protection for them, as both the world, verse 14, and the evil one, verse 15, hate them and stand against them. But Jesus says they won't be stopped. Jesus uses the word sanctify here in the meaning of being set apart, of being consecrated for service to God rather than holiness. It's the same word used in chapter 10 verse 36 where Jesus refers to himself as the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world. So just like Jesus did, we are to live in the world, but not live like the world. We're not to separate from the world and be in a little Christian bubble, but nor are we to synchronise with the world and lose our gospel distinctiveness. 
our lives are meant to embody the gospel. We live in such a way that the people in the world cannot make sense of our lives without knowing that we're Christians. The way that we approach our work, our time, our bodies, our money, our relationships, our suffering, our joys, our fears, every single little part of our life is shaped by and coloured by the fact that we belong to God. We are set apart to be sent into the world. And so I guess this raises the question that if you feel that there is a disconnect between your Sunday and your Monday, maybe it's worth exploring a little more your identity as belonging to God. So we've seen that Jesus prays for himself and for his followers that we would be faithful to our mission to the world. And lastly, I want to take a minute to explore one of the main ways that we are to do that and that Jesus prays for us. And that is through our unity. Verses 20 to 23. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So we see unity is repeated by Jesus in verse 21, 22 and 23. Jesus prays for unity because it's one of the fundamental markers of our imitation of the unity of the Godhead and because it's one of the greatest dangers that undermines the gospel. Recently, I read Christus Tolkis' book, Damascus, which is set during the early years of the Christian movement and Paul's conversion. It's a pretty intense and confronting book and I wouldn't recommend it for everyone, but it does capture just how subversive and countercultural Christian unity was. In Roman times, where slaves and noble, male and female, Jew and Gentile, in Christian communities where they ate together, where they touched, where they were treated equally. There's one character that says really derisively of Christians, slaves mingle with free men and women and men pray together. Beggars and orphans stand side by side with merchants and traders. And it says his voice was hoarse with disgust at such shamelessness, such madness, The unity of the church is meant to demand a Jesus explanation because it is so uniquely different to the rest of the world. For the world to see such diversity in our community testifies to Jesus. I remember when my previous church would go to regular working bees at a local school and I remember one time a group of us were helping out at the school fete, we were washing dishes 
It was a hot and windy day and we were outside washing dishes for hours upon hours. And the school people were amazed and confused as to why young professionals and uni students would help out a school on their day off with absolutely no benefit to themselves. The same thing happened at my kids' birthday parties. We'd invite all the, co- the whole class as well as friends from church and I'd overhear parents of the kids asking some of the people from my church, why are you here? Why are you helping here? It was the gospel that brought us together, that compelled us to step outside of our comfort zones, out of our homogenous enclaves and become a family that looks like and points to the kingdom of God. The other thing about unity is that it can be an encouragement to us because we aren't expected to go it alone. And I don't know about you, but in some situations I feel like I'm the only Christian that my friends know and I feel so much pressure to get it right and to represent Christ well. And it's not meant to be that way. You see, if it's just you, people can think that that's who you are, that it's your personality. And they don't get to see that the evidence of your faith doesn't belong exclusively to you, but to all Christians. And when we're together, they can see the breadth of diversity as to how we live that out in all our differences. So how can you link up with other Christians to display Jesus more fully and take the pressure off yourself? How can you have church friendships that naturally intersect with your other friends and relationships? Can a couple of you join a sports team? Can you do park run together with some mates from work? Can you throw a party and invite people from church as well as people from your other circles? Jesus didn't send us out alone. He sent us out as a community on mission together because it's by our love for one another that others see that the gospel changes us. And you know, people are lonely. COVID has made this clearer than ever before. People no longer have to go out and leave their homes. We can get food delivered. We can shop online and get things sent to our door. We can get constant entertainment streamed into our homes. There's no practical reason to leave the comfort of our homes anymore. And yet these walls have left us isolated and lonely. And I know what an incredibly warm and generous and loving community you are and how you display the gospel because I get to see it and experience it all the time. But the trouble is that we keep it hidden all to ourselves. People are desperate for community. But what makes the church distinct, or should make us distinct, is that we're all different. But together, we form a community under Christ. The church should have different cultures, different political views, different ages and stages, all mixed together, so that we can reflect the unity and the beautiful diversity of God's people. And when that is on display for the world, it is a powerful and compelling testament that we belong to Jesus. 
So as we pray and think about the future of our church and how we are to be God's family on mission, we need to keep Jesus' words here front and centre to our thinking and our planning. How can we take everything that God has blessed us with, both individually and corporately, to help make Jesus known to our neighbours? How can we live lives of such gospel intentionality that the world around us sees something of Jesus? How have we been set apart from the world in order to be a blessing to the world as we conform to Jesus and his word? I hope that Jesus' prayer has sparked your imagination and it refocuses your prayers and your choices as you think about this. I think it's only appropriate that we pray now and commit this to God. So please join me as we pray. Father God, we thank you that you sent Jesus into the world to make you known and to ultimately show your glory by dying on the cross for us. Thank you that we are known by you and loved by you. Please help us to be faithful to your calling, to be sent into the world. Show us how we can be distinctive as Christians in this world and live with gospel intentionality so that others will come to know you too. As Jesus prayed, help us to be faithful to your word, to be set apart for your mission and to be unified in the gospel. We pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.